Thank you very much. About um, between 25, about 25 years ago, I think I visited Eretz Yisrael in the summertime, and uh, among the many people that I met, I met Rav Moshe and he gave me, he wrote quite a few volumes about Rav Cook, biographies of Rav Cook and Hanhagas Rav Cook and Hagim and so on. So he, as the, uh, the day before I left, I left in the middle of Chalamite Sukkot to come back to America. So the day before I left, he gave me a copy of his Sefer, Moadei Hariya, about how Rav Cook would observe the various Yamim Tevim, the Divetere he would say, and Hanhagas and the Chumras and the Kulas and whatever. Various things. So, um... I read it on the plane. I started reading on the plane, so fat safer. And then I continued to read it in America. And uh, before then, it wasn't so popular in America. So Rav Cook, I never heard about the people from America. The Swarim of Rav Cook were not so popular at that time. So the only time I heard from Rav Cook was I used to see in the in the uh, Anglo-Jewish uh, newspapers and the in the journals and the magazines, the Reform and the Conservative rabbis were always quoting Rabbi Cook. I never heard an Orthodox rabbi in America quote Rav Cook. So I thought he was some philosopher. And uh, I didn't know anything about him. So I, I started reading this safe. I saw he was a big Tamachacham. <laughs> he knew how to learn. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Now it's uh, now it became more popular. The fact that his his followers and so on. So I sent Rav Neiria a thank you note, and I wrote him in a letter that I really never appreciated who Rav Cook was until I started reading his safer. And then since then he said he passed away already. Rav Neiria so he sent me all of the other swarm. He has around the seven eight night swarm. I know all about Rav Cook. And uh, I thanked him very much. So he sent me back a letter. And he said there were two great people in our generation who were misunderstood. He says, Rav Cook and Rav Soloveitchik. And he said, he as a Talmud felt that he had an obligation to set, he learned by Rav Cook. As a teenager, he came from Europe. There it is. And he felt an obligation to set the record straight about his Rebbe. And I should feel an obligation to set the record straight about my Rebbe. And he said, don't wait till Rav Soloveitchik dies. You have to start now. He says, he didn't put out the first Sefer after Rav Cook passed away. He was writing for 30 years while Rav Cook was still alive. He said, he started to write down all the things. And it took him many years to compile everything together. So I should do the same with Rav Soloveitchik. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't listen to his I didn't. I didn't write anything. After Rav Soloveitchik passed away... So then uh, I started to write down different divrei that I had heard from the Rov over the years, and then I, my son was learning, and one of my sons was learning in Baltimore at the time, and I sent uh, a Xerox copy of all of the divrei to my son, and I asked him, "Do you remember all these things? I must have said them at home, you know, many, many times." So my son told me back some of them he did hear, some of them he never heard before. And he showed it to his friends. And then the friends appreciated it. His friends said, I should put out a safer. So then I reminded myself of what Rav Neiria had sent me in the letter. You have to set the record straight. How come Rav Salvechik was so misunderstood by so many different people? So there are different reasons. One of the... One of the several reasons is because of his language, his terminology, was it often a Talmudic terminology. He would be giving a drosha or write an essay and he would be using Talmudic terminology assuming that everybody knows what these terms mean. Or he would coin a phrase 
in the middle of a shir or in the middle of a lecture on Jewish machshava, and he would explain what it means. And then in a later lecture, in many later essays, he would be using his terminology, assuming that everybody knows what it means. And not all the people knew what the Talmudic terminology meant. Not all the people understood what the, his, uh, his vocabulary was. I remember on one occasion I attended a, uh, an OU uh, convention. They have every two years, they have a convention over the weekend. So they had one speaker who was speaking about... Um, the Hesped that Rab Salvechik delivered over Abchaim Oiza, when Abchaim Oiza passed away. And uh, in the middle of that Hesped, he, uh, he spoke a lot about Das Torah. So the speaker was delivering a talk about what was Rab Salvechik's position about Das Torah. So he was saying over the Hesped, and then at the end of his, he just said a presentation, what it says in the Hesped. Then at the end he said he didn't understand certain parts he was honest. He said he didn't understand certain lines in the Hespid as it was published in Hebrew. And he started to ask the audience if they can help him. So one of the expressions I remember stands out in my mind. One expression I didn't understand was Common Talmudic expression. The person who was speaking had learned in yeshivas, but he, he didn't learn till he got smicha. He learned in Wayu. He didn't learn to smicha. He learned uh, after he finished college also, but he hadn't learned enough that he should know what that expression means. And several other expressions also that he pointed out to the audience. He didn't know what this meant, didn't know what that meant. He just wasn't familiar with Talmudic terminology. It wasn't even a, an issue. He wasn't familiar with Rav Soloveitchik's uh, vocabulary. And because of the fact that the people didn't chap a lot of times the terminology, just uh, Talmudic expressions, or Rav Soloveitchik's own unique Concepts that he would uh, coin terms. So that's why very often people simply didn't even understand his sikhah schoolin. When he would just make a, a casual comment on something that was happening, they didn't say, they did not understand whether he was for or against what was happening. He would say a Talmudic expression. They didn't know what that meant. Or he would crack a joke. So everyone would laugh. He obviously was saying a joke. But he didn't know what they were laughing about. If you look in the published collection of published essays, the Rasulvechik has the copyright on. He authorized someone he knew from Europe, I think, to translate from the Yiddish uh, droshes that he delivered from the cassette to translate it into Hebrew. So a, there was a joke, that, a line that Rasulvechik would say every year and a half he would get that line into a drosha, somehow or another. He always had to smuggle this line in. Uh, when the reform or the conservative are chiseling down, they take it, they're cutting off from the religion, so every year they're going to cut off a little bit more, you're going to have nothing left. So he said that Shadal made a comment many years ago that uh, the reform first decided to do away with the second Yukon Purkin. What do you have to say Yukon Purkin twice? The two different Yukon Purkins. So they said, what do you have to say twice? They say one Yukon Purkin and Yinook. Then at a later convention, they decided that no one understands Aramaic anyway, so they may as well do away with the first Yukon Purkin also. So Shadal said as a joke, They wiped off all the Yukon Perkins. If you're going to start by wiping off one Yukon Perkin, then you're going to wipe off all the Yukon Perkins. So it's an obvious uh, joke. Everyone understands what it is. So the official translation of that line says, if you'll know Hebrew, So what's the joke? 
that those people who, who took out the Yukum Purkum from the Siddha went and they took out the Pasuk from the Chumash. But what does one got to do with the other? Totally missed the whole, the whole joke. But everybody was laughing where Absalvechik said it. So the, so the fellow heard that it's a joke. You got to say, so that's the way he, he didn't understand the Yiddish. He didn't understand it. And this is a person who knew Yiddish from Europe. He was doing all the translation. <coughs> it... It sometimes reminds me to tell a story in the biography of the Chazanish. When he was a little boy, his father was a rov and his father had a big library. So as a little child, the Chazanish told his father, Daddy, he said in Yiddish, I know every letter and every sefer. Every letter that it says in every sefer. So the father said, what are you talking about? So he said, take out a sefer and I'll show you. So he took out an Ebenezer. So he says, Aleph, Beis, Nun, Hey, Ayin. He knows every letter in the sefer. Absolutely, he knows every letter. He didn't know how. He didn't know how the letters come together to make a word. He didn't know how the words join together to make a sentence. He didn't understand how the sentences join together to make a paragraph. He didn't understand what it said in Ebenezer, but he knew every letter that it said in Ebenezer. So the same thing. Rav Salvechi gave a, a shir or a drasha. So everyone understood. Those who came understood Yiddish. Then when he switched to give the shir in English, the Chachavada, everybody understood every word in English. If you ask any, anyone, what, what, what does this word mean? He'll tell you what the translation of that word is. But to put the words together, to make a concept, or to put the concepts together, to make a whole shir, unfortunately, many people didn't understand. It was like the Chazanish. Many of the listeners in those days were like the Chazanish. As a little child, he said, he knows every letter in all of the swarm. So it's very unfortunate, like Rabbi Neri had told me, that uh, he considered these two people, uh, in the Orthodox camp at least, the two most understood individuals in, in his generation. Rabbi Meir Barilan wrote uh, a sefer that uh, was written in Yiddish, from Biz Yerushalayim, and it was translated into Hebrew, very easy reading. So he writes, uh, he has one chapter where he writes Ekranis about Rab Chaim Soloveitchik. So he writes that you can never guess in advance what Rab Chaim Soloveitchik's position would be. It was always a big surprise. He always came up with some new insight on any, on any Shiloh that came up. The same is true with, Rav, uh, with the Rav Zechan Levrocha. When he belonged to the Agudas Rabbanim, he was not a typical Agudas, Aga, member of the Agudas Rabbanim. When he belonged to the Rabbinical Council of America, he was uh, the head of the Aloha Commission and so on. You couldn't say that he was a typical member of the RCA. When he belonged to Mizrahi, he belonged to Aguda, whatever organization he belonged to, you couldn't say that he was typical. You couldn't guess in advance. You couldn't stereotype him. Guess in advance, he's probably going to take this stand in this position like all of the other members of the organization. That's what Rav Meir pointed out before. Rav Salvechi was like Rav Chaim in this sense. Every issue had to be worked out based on the dinah. What, what does the Allah have to say about this? So whoever knew halacha, whoever knew how to learn, in the same style of learning that Rav Salvechik knew, can guess in advance what he's going to say. But if you didn't know how to learn, you couldn't guess based on his political uh, association just because it belongs to this organization. That organization doesn't necessarily mean he's going to agree with uh, all the points of that organization. And Rav Soloveitchik was never one to uh, follow what was politically correct. Um, as Rav Meir mentioned before, never apologetic. Uh, he often would take stands that were totally not politically correct. And in fact, uh, there's a collection of, um, of uh, letters that was published, I think, after Shlom Zalman Sharagai passed away. I remember when I was growing up, 
as a little child. His name was always in the newspaper. He was one of the Mizrahi leaders in Eretz Yisrael. And then his name didn't appear for many years, 20, 30 years. I thought, sure enough, in oil of Memphis. And then one day I got a letter from him. I thought I got a letter from a dead man. I couldn't believe it. My hands were shaking when I opened up the letter. He read an essay that I had published in the Arab Israel and he gave comments. So I didn't realize he was still alive. And he died apparently Beseva Toivo. So I think, I think after he passed away, they published uh, maybe the last years of his life, he published a collection of his correspondence with uh, Rabbonim of the generation, some greater than the others. So he has a small section, a few letters that he corresponded with Rav Soloveitch. So apparently in one of the letters, he's commenting, Rav Soloveitch spoke at the annual Mizrahi Convention in New York, and they wrote it up in the newspapers in Eretz Yisrael that Rav Soloveitchik took the Mizrahi to task because of some position that they took in the Knesset. At the Mizrahi conventions, those who are old enough will remember that uh, every so often he would agree with what they, the position that they took and give me Yashikach, and every so often he would disagree and give Musa, he says he doesn't think that this is right. So they wrote it up in the newspapers in Eretz Yisrael. Sharagai misunderstood that he's leaving the Mizrahi. So he sent Rav Soloveitchik a letter, it's not right, why is he leaving the Mizrahi? So he corresponds, he writes him back in the, in the response, a husband and a wife sometimes disagree with each other. They're not holding by getting divorced. You have a right to disagree, you're still married, you still love each other, and, uh, and you have a disagreement. So he says, I disagree with the position that the Mizrahi took on a certain thing. No, I'm not getting divorced from the Mizrahi. And he writes in the letter, that if I were to join the Aguda, I would have Kabad Malachim. That's what everybody's waiting for in America. All the Yeshivas and all the Rabbanim in America. If I would join them in the Aguda, they would give me Kabad. And because I belong to the Mizrahi, they don't give me any Kabad. But he says he thinks that the Mizrahi's position is more correct than the Aguda's position. So that's why he belongs to the Mizrahi. And he encourages his Talmudim to join along with the Mizrahi. And he never cares for what's politically correct. Even though he knows that he'll get uh, much more covered if he'll join the other camp, he holds at this, at this camp, no one camp is 100% uh, on, on, uh, on the button, but he feels that this camp is uh, more correct than the other camp. I think there's a uh, misunderstanding about Rav Salvechik's, a great misunderstanding about Rav Salvechik's uh, position on Minhogim. Uh, many people must have heard that uh, Rav Salvech used to machabek minhagim. He he used to make fun of different minhagim. He used to make fun of minhagim the same way the Holy Chazanish would make fun of minhagim. The same way Rabbanim in every generation make fun of minhagim. Tosfos writes on the first daf in Baba Basra, commenting on the first Mishnah in Baba Basra. The Mishnah says when they have neighbors and they want to build the wall, how thick does the wall have to be? So if the material is this material, it has to be so thick. If it's a second, A, a B. If it's B, material B, it has to be so thick. Material C has to be so thick. And then it ends off in the Mishnah, Hakol Kaminin Kamdina. So Tesis asks the question, if the, if the conclusion is going to be Hakol Kaminin Kamdina, so what do you need all the first three, whatever the Minin Kamdina, however thick it is, that's how you do. So Tesis says, from this Mishnah, the Rabbi Tam established this principle that sometimes there's such a thing as a Minin Shtus. If you want, to, if the minig hamdina is that it's thicker than what the Mishnah says, and that that kind of material A, B, and C that I mentioned the Mishnah, that's a minig shtus, and you don't follow it. So the Mishnah gives you what's the proper shear. If you're using material A, it's so thick. Material B, so thick. If it's a different kind of material that we didn't mention, then you follow the minig hamdina, provided that it's as reasonable as these shurim that we gave you in the Mishnah. And this indeed is a tshuva of the Rabbeinu Tam. That uh, the history books made it famous. 
in the yeshivas, if they're not so familiar with this, Shuvah Shabbat and Tam is quoted on the bottom of the page of the Mordechai. In the Yedda Masechus Gitna, the Rabbin and Tam pointed out that the word Minhog, Mem Nun, Mem, mem Nun, Hey Gimel, spells the same letters as Gehenim. That sometimes a minig is Gehenim. You follow a minig and it's Gehenim. Why? It's a minig stus, a silly, stupid minig is, is Gehenim. So, when, how do you know when it's a minig shtus, when it's not a minig shtus? So it's up to the Rabbonim in every generation to determine. So the Chazanish held that certain men hug him a minig shtus and he didn't follow them. Take, for example, very common practice that when the Balabatim asked the Rav to sell the Chamas for them, so the Rav makes the Kabbalah's Kenyan, he gives them a handkerchief, or the old Rabbonim used to give the bottom of their jacket because the jackets were made from, uh, from wool. The handkerchiefs are made from cotton, so some of the posts can hold that you got to have wool, gimelah, gimelah, boys. Cotton, you have to have a whole handkerchief. So you make a Kabbalah's Kenyan that the Balabah should appoint a rabbi as a shliach to sell a chametz for him. So the Ramam quotes this minhog in Hilchus Mechira, and he writes that the minhog doesn't make any sense and it doesn't accomplish anything at all. You don't have to have a Kenyan to appoint someone as a shliach, and the Kenyan is not meaningful at all. So the Hazarish and this typeler never made a Kabbalah's Kenyan when they, when they ha- used to ask the Rav to sell the Chomets for them. The Ramam says that it's a minhog too, so they didn't observe that. Rav Soloveitchi gave a whole shir on that Rambam. He said, read the next line of the Ramam. First the Ramam says that it doesn't accomplish anything and is not meaningful and you don't need it. Then the Ramam says, but it's a minhog and he, and he explains what the minhog is all about. Rav Soloveitchi gave a whole long shir. That was one of his favorite shir to explain what Kenyan Chalip and Kenyan Suda is all about. He used to say that shir, I remember, at least once every two years. He loved that. He would go through the whole thing. And this Ramam would be part of that big shir. So, uh, so he said, the meaning does make sense. Rav Salvechi was very mocked about that. In fact, he, every, every rabbi knows that on, uh, my father was a rabbi uh, for, for, for many, many years, a practicing rabbi. My father just passed away two months ago. So, uh, so every rabbi knows that on uh, Erev Pesach, as you're about to leave the house in order to go sell the Hamas to the Nachri, there's always going to be a Balabas going to call up on the telephone the last minute, Rabbi, what do I do? I forgot to come to sell the Hametz. So, so you can't make a Kabbalah's Kenyan over the telephone. You can't give him a handkerchief over the telephone. So nisht is nisht. So, so you don't have to observe the minute. So Rav Soloveitchik explained in Shir two methods how the Rabbi can fulfill the minute even though the Balabas is not even there in person. So he gave two explanations for some other occasion. Not for now. He, why? Because this is an old minig that's recorded in the Rambam. And the Rambam explains why it does make sense. So if it makes sense, you have to observe the minig even, even if the Balabas is calling on a telephone. You have to figure out how you can observe the minig. I remember we used to look at the Rav. We used to wonder, what's the matter with this man? Why does he do everything different from everybody else? Why doesn't he do things normally? No one else does these kind of things. And then when we got older, we started to learn Shulchan Aruch. We were so surprised. That's what it says in the Shulchan Aruch. Nobody does like that. When the rabbi would get an aliyah, he would turn to the side. Whoever saw anybody. In the earlier, whoever saw a person gets an aliyah. So the bracha turning to the side. So then we were surprised. We looked in the Shulchan Aruch. That's what it says in the Shulchan Aruch. He turned to the side. This is a minute that nobody observes anymore. Every minig that's mentioned in the Shulchan Aruch that made sense, he said that's a minig. And even though the Mishnah Bura says we don't observe it anymore, he used to observe that minig. I remember uh, I heard from my uncle that uh, he was once driving Rav Salvechik from New York to Boston 
and it was the last night to recite Kiddush Levana, Rav Salvechik hadn't recited Kiddush Levana. So he asked him if he can stop the car on the way, sees the Levana, they got out of the car, they both stood up. Rav Salvechik said Kiddush Levana, and he said to my uncle, Shalom Aleichem, and he answered back, Aleichem Shalom, Shalom Aleichem, and Shalom three times said to the same person. So I thought, where did he get this one from? You gotta say Shalom Aleichem, you gotta have three people. It's like a famous story, Yiddish folklore, about the Yeshuvanik, about the Jewish farmer. He lived among Goyim. So he trained three of his Goyish neighbors how to answer Aleichem Shalom. It's <laughs> a whole, the whole, the whole story, a whole story about it. Everybody knows you gotta have three people. So I wondered, where did he get this minute from? So I figured, I look in the Kafachaim. Kafachaim always quotes all the funny minhagim, Sfardish minhagim. But in order to find on the bottom of the page in the Kafachaim, you first have to find on top of the page where it says that you say. So I, I took, I took out my Kafachaim. I looked on the top of the page. That's what it says on top of the page. The Ramah says that. You say, Shalom Aleichem, three, Oymalach Avero. You tell your friend, three times Shalom Aleichem. So I remember, I was so surprised. I never heard of such a thing. That's what it says in the Shulchan Aruch. So I remember soon after, a few months after, I visited Eretz Yisrael for the yeshiva to visit a different yeshiva. So Rav Goldberg was still alive. So he was asking me, tell me over something from Rav Salvech. Tell me over Achidosh Advar Torah, Mineg, Adin, Apsak, something, something. So I told him over, that's the latest thing that I, I was just surprised. The Rav Salvech said, Shalom Aleichem, three times to the same person. He says, all the time, he says, he was by Rav All the time, there would be a, uh, a yard outside, the Chatzar, full of people. And everybody else would say, Shalom Aleichem, to three, three different people. Rav Salavechik always said three times to the same person. That's what it says in Shulchan Aruch. He followed what it says in Shulchan Aruch. When we got older, we saw, we thought, what is this man doing? Everything is different by him. Then when we got older, we found out that's what it says in the Shulchan Aruch. Rav Salavechik didn't like Minhagim that was superstitious. We just read yesterday in the parsha, Lois Nachshev, Lois Originally, when the Rabbi Shalom gave us the Torah, so the Jewish people were in the forefront of fighting against all of superstition. And now, after so many generations, we have so many Minhagim. A lot of them are Minhagim Shtus. So, people would, if you did take a poll, you would probably get the impression that the Jews are the most superstitious. More superstitious than the Nachum, than the Yom Asoylam. So, those were the Menhagim that Rasul Abedjik was opposed to. One of the Talmudim, Rabbi Genak, when, when he was getting married, so he asked Rasul there is a Hungarian custom, I think, of untying, the Hassan should untie uh, the knots on his shoelaces and, and uh, unbutton his, uh, I think, I, I don't, I'm not exactly sure what it is, untie the tie over here, untie everything. So yes, Rav Salvechik should uh, should he observe that meaning? Rav Salvechik said, No, you're not allowed to. Not allowed to. That's that's uh, nichush. So then he said, But my mother-in-law wants very much. So he said, Don't fight with your mother-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> he said, Just have in mind that it doesn't mean anything. Absolutely nothing. He was opposed to those minhagim. All the gedolim know a minikshtus. He's not allowed to observe. They once asked Rav Salavechik about uh, getting married. It says in Shulchan Aruch, a minute to get married, Tachas Kippas Harakiya. Some interpret that this minute exists in the Talmud Yerushalmi. Some interpret that it's a Gemara and the Yerushalmi like that. All the way dates back to the days of the Gemara. So someone asked Rav Salavechik, Shasatrak, you know, a lot, of the whole, a lot of the wedding halls, you can't get married outside. So you have to get married inside a building. So Rav Salavechik said jokingly, the Rabbanu Shalom hears the blessings even if you recite them uh, in the building. God can hear your prayers even if you say it. So the students were wondering, what's he making fun of the meaning? It's in Shulchan Aruch. Some say it's in Yerushalmi. So we didn't understand why was he so opposed. Then later on, we saw Rabbi Moshe Feinstein has a tshuva where he talks about the meaning. So he says also like Rabbi Salavechik, 
a minig, in order that it shouldn't be a violation of Baltasif, has to have some kind of a kiyum. Sometimes you have minig to be machma like a certain opinion. The din is really like a, like a Rashi, and we're machma for the Ramam's opinion, a minig. Sometimes the din is like Rameyer, and we're machma like Rabbiuda. Sometimes, uh, sometimes a minig is, the Gemara has a... We have a minute wait six hours in between Fleshiks and Milchiks, six hours, three hours, whatever you wait in between. So that's a minute. So that's a minute. The Chachamim are authorized to institute Harchokis Gzeris Medirabanon. So the biblical prohibition of Basta Bachal is on if the milk and the meat are cooked together. And the rabbis prohibited even eating milk and meat together, even if it's not cooked together. Even if it's not cooked together. But they never said anything about how, how many hours you have to wait. That's already Minhogim. But the Minhogim are a further extension of, of the Dindirabanon. The Dindirabanon is based on Ishmartim Es Mishmarti. That was the concluding Pasang Parshas Afremos. So sometimes you have Midirabonu, they made Xerah to a certain extent, they didn't want to make too much of Xerah. And then the Minig developed that we have even a further Xerah. We are Machmer a little more. So that's the fulfillment of the Din. You're not Mechayif. The Chachamim never required of us we should do that. But it's a further fulfillment of the Pasuk, the Mishmarti. You have a lot of times like that. Menhagim and Machmer for things. So Rav Soledesh pointed out, every minute has to be a kiyom of, of some kind of idiom, machma for a certain shita, or, or, or you're extending a certain gzeret. Uh, but it's not a minute in the middle, middle of nowhere. What do you mean a minute to get married under the tachas kips her kish? Sure, it represents something wonderful. We want to invoke the blessing. Vayote osachutz, the Rabbanu Shalom told Avraham Avinu, you should walk outside, svarakachavim and kuchalispa, count the stars. You're going to have so many children, so that's what it says in Shulchan Aruch. If a woman is getting remarried at the age of 65, so you don't have to walk outside, she's not interested in having any babies. But a young girl is getting married for the first time, so she, we want to give her a blessing. So we want to invoke the blessing that the Rabbah Shalom gave to Avraham Avinu. So he told them, go outside, we're probably not in fulfillment of the meaning. If you make a hole in the roof... That's not the meaning. The meaning is, you walk outside. Not you stand in the building and you take off the roof. So, so we want to invoke that blessing. So that's where the meaning came from. But that's a meaning that's a pure ceremony. So that's Rav Soloveitchik. That's a problematic meaning. Ramashi says that's a problematic meaning. The meaning to get married, it's a very old meaning. But it's not a kilm of anything. So that's what Rav Soloveitchik said jokingly, that uh, God will listen to your prayers and your blessings, even if you say them inside the house. That's a different kind of a minig over there. That's a minig l'sim and toiv, like Ramesha Feinstein writes. The minig is that the gala wears a white gown and you have white tablecloths. And what if the gala wants to wear a blue polka dot uh, gown or something? He's going to hate. So, so why the minig? The minig, purity, sanctity, holiness. Ah, but you can't say that that's a minig. You can't say that it's a different kind of a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, things l'sim and toiv. It's not really the same as a minig. That a minig is an extension of some kind of a dinder or an extension of a dinder It's a different kind of a minig. That's a, that's really a ceremony. That's what Rav Soloveitchik used to complain about. One of the recurrent themes in his drushes and his published essays, in his Hesper Aravavala, he has that. That his uncle Aravavala was very upset about the uh, ceremonialization of the Jewish religion. He would complain also, where they're introducing so many ceremonies. They say, we don't have any ceremonies. We have, we have Dinam, we have Dinam de Raisa, we have Dinam de Rabban. We don't have any ceremonies. And he was, uh, in the earlier years, to have this drusha published, in the earlier years, he was upset about um, the way 
some of the people who would do Kiruv would try to do Kiruv with Balabati by showing them all the beautiful ceremonies that the Jewish religion has and all the sentimental uh, value of all of these ceremonies so his, so his complaint was that the Jews in America are much more intelligent than that and they're looking for content these are people who are gra- college graduates they have graduate degrees so you can't just give them sentimental feelings and ceremonies you have to give them something with teichet and he thought that uh, Minhogim should be like that as well so it wasn't that he uh, on the one hand he was a terrible stickler for Minhogim every minute that's in Shulchan he used to observe he, no, his students never heard of it and then uh, he would show us that's what it says in Shulchan he would observe every minute and then other Minhogim he would be opposed to like any Godel would be opposed if you hold that that's a Minik Shtus and different Chachamim have different attitudes as far as what's considered a Minik Shtus and what's not considered a Minik Shtus Some had the mistaken impression that Rav Soloveitchik was a, a mere genius. And as a mere genius, you can say whatever you want. You can ignore, ignore what it says in Shulchan Aruch. He would just make up dinam just like this. Because I never saw him look in Shulchan Aruch. He had already read the Shulchan Aruch before. These were young teenagers in the class. Or people in their early 20s listening in the Shia. So he wouldn't open up a Shulchan Aruch in front of them. He would show, he would go through the Gemara, and then he would study the Ramah, and he would explain with Gemara, and say, based on this, the din is like this. So they would look it up in Shulchan Aruch and said, not so. So most of the time, when Rabbi would say things against the Shulchan Aruch, he had very strong traditions. Sometimes traditions from his father, sometimes from his two grandfathers. He, he always let us know he had two grandfathers. He had one grandfather who was more famous than the other. The more famous grandfather today in Lela Ma'ashivis is Abchaim Soloveitchik. But he said he was very influenced by his other grandfather. He, had, uh, he was brought up by his other grandfather. He was much closer to his other grandfather. So, and he had traditions from other G'daylam in Europe. Not just his father and his two grandfathers. He met other G'daylam. So over the course of years, I published a year after Rav Soloveitchik passed away. I published the Sefer where I wrote many of the practices of Rav Soloveitchik. So I wrote, he had this practice, and it was based on this. He had that practice based on this Rashba. He had this practice based on this Ramam. He had this practice based on a Shach over there, and he applied it over there. So there were people who were very upset. Older Rabban and Modern, they're very upset. Because their impression was, no, it wasn't based on anything. Rabbi Salesh was just a mere genius. And uh, you can say whatever you don't please. You can make up whatever you want. And you can ignore what it says in Shulchan And they were so upset when I wrote this. And then they confronted me. So I said, no, I'm not, I didn't write that source myself. Rabbi Soloveitchik said that was the source. Whenever he didn't say, and I, I was writing my own suggestion, I put in parentheses and I say, this is what I think. But whenever I didn't write like that, I was quoting Rabbi Soloveitchik said that that's what it's based on. And very often he said, this was a tradition in Europe where he came from. This was the local tradition in this city, in that city. He, was, he lived in different, uh, different areas in Europe. That's not that he disregarded what it says in the Shulchan Aruch. When you study Shulchan Aruch, those who study Shulchan Aruch know very often the Taz will disagree with the Shulchan Aruch, very often the Mishnah Brewer will disagree. The Mishnah Brewer will quote many who disagree with, with the Psaq of the Shulchan Aruch. So that's, you start with the Shulchan Aruch and then you discuss how much of this uh, is the consensus and how much is not accepted. So Absolvechik had many traditions and many sifas in the Shulchan Aruch that we don't follow the, the Psalkim of the Shulchan Aruch, but he wouldn't disregard the Shulchan Aruch at all. In fact, those who are familiar with Rab Salvechik's style of Psak and Ramesh Feinstein's style of Psak will uh, have to admit that Rab Salvechik's style was much more classical than Ramesh's. 
Rabbi would analyze what it says in the Gemara and the Shulchan Shain and the Mela, they didn't apply it in this case like this. And Rabbi Moshe Feinstein often will come up with a new idea not that no one brought up and brought up at all. He would quote a new Gemara from somewhere else and he was saying, therefore in this case it didn't doesn't apply. Or a lot of times if you say in our present day and age it doesn't apply because of a certain reason. Rav Salvechik would rarely do that. He would be more traditional than Rav Moshe, except that Rav Salvechik, the way he spoke, the way he dressed and the way he spoke, and uh, he looked like he's a revolutionary and he's saying something uh, tremendously uh, original. And Rav Moshe Feinstein is Arash Tilayid, you know, he's so humble and so quiet like this. When he delivered his talks, everybody thought Rav Moshe is very traditional. Rav Salvechik is saying original, it's just the reverse. Rav Salvechik is just saying over in a fancy way what it said in the Gemara, what it said in the Shulchan Aruch. And Ramosha, in his uh, still away, was like the Chavetz Chaim. He looked, Chavetz Chaim was a very humble, quiet man. And you look in the Mishnah Bura, every single page he reverses the Psak HaMakubo for centuries. There was an accepted Psak for centuries in connection with every page in Shulchan Aruch. And the Mishnah Bura does away with many of these traditional Psakim. Because this new Sefer came out and this new manuscript was published and a new Taisvi Harosh came out. He reverses the Psak on every page. That's very often the Chazanish is very upset on the whole Mishnah Brura. What is he turning over the whole Shulchan upside down? But he got away with it because he's a quiet, humble man. So Moshe Feinstein also, he was a big revolutionary. He got away with everything because Azash still a Yid, the way he spoke, the way his Litzvah Yiddish. He would always talk about the Beshmedris, the Beshmedrish. Bishmedris. He pronounced the shins as a son. Rav Salvechik spoke normally and he would be very eloquent and a, and a good speaker. And everyone thought that hey, he's saying something original. He was just saying over oh, what he said in the Gemara. He was saying dramatically. I remember years ago uh, they once published in Hapardis one of the drushes that Rav Salvechik said. This was a thing that he would say. I remember a few yardside drushes and other Shurim had mentioned it. So he gave a marshal about Kavar Abris. That uh, the Kain Gadol is walking on Yom Kippur to do the Avod and the Kodesh HaKadoshim and all of a sudden he bumps into a Mace Mitzvah and there's no one else around to take care of the Mace Mitzvah. The Kain Gadol, the Kain Gadol was preparing for the last seven days. Seven days before Yom Kippur he has to prepare to do the Avod. And then he bumps into the Mace Mitzvah. Ay, he, has to, he has to take care of the Mace Mitzvah and he doesn't do the Avod. Well, who is the Mace Mitzvah? Uh, bum. Who, who is it? It's a person. No one knows who it is. If, he knows, if they know who he is, his relatives are going to have friends. His relatives has no friends, no relatives. No one. No one's there. No, no one's going to take care of him. So the Jewish religion gives so much significance, so much importance. Every human being, even though he's a bum, an unknown figure. He's not, not didn't accomplish anything. Not a big professor. Not a big rabbi. Not, not, not a big scientist. Not a big musician. Not a big artist. Nothing. A plain person. Otherwise, he wouldn't be a mitzvah. So this is the marshal that Rav Salvechik would often give. So this was written up in Haparadi. So someone wanted to attack Rav Salvechik, but he didn't want to write a, an outright attack. So he wrote in a letter to the uh, Hapardes, that was a Torah journal that used to come out. So he wrote in a letter. He says, the one who wrote over the drasha must have made a mistake. He meant Rav Salvechik made a mistake. Didn't mean the one. He said, what do you mean? Can God on Yom, on Yom Kippur, you don't bury anybody on Yom Kippur. What do you mean the Kain God takes care of the how can the Kain Gadol on Yom Kippur be all by himself? He's walking with, with uh, Misharsim to the right, to the left. He's not walking by himself. What do you mean? He's, it can't be a Mace Mitzvah on Yom Kippur. The whole story is impossible. So he writes, he meant to say, Rav Salvechik doesn't know what he's talking about. So he wrote it, Belosh Nikia. He said, the one who wrote it up must have written it up wrong. It can't be. So the next issue of Haparde, someone else from Lakewood sent in a letter. Taisus and Nazir gives this marshal. 
just quoting on Taisus. And all the commentaries on the Gemara, no, it's not kasha. How can it be on Yom Kippur? You don't bury him. Rav Sebenshev, just quoting on Taisus. And no, he was giving a marshal. Same thing, uh, Rav Zalvechik would often give the, he would often mention from the Talmud Yerushalmi, that the Talmud Yerushalmi says that if a person is learning all day and all night, the person who's Taras Emnasi, he doesn't work for a living, doesn't just learn Daf Yerushalmi and then go to work. He only learns all day and all night. So the Talmud Yerushalmi presents a position that he's not obligated to recite Kriyashma. That's not the accepted position. The Babli says not so. But Yerushalmi says not obligated. So the reason why, because Zeshinun is Zeshinun. The whole essence of the mitzvah of Kriyashma is to learn Talmud Torah. And this Talmud Chacham is sitting and learning anyway. So what does he need the Kriyashma for? He's learning this anyway. So there were Balabatim who didn't realize that this was, they didn't chap Rav Salvech, he used to speak very quickly. One of their Rabbanim from Eretz Yisrael came, uh, Rabbi Levine's son, he used to be in Paradis Khan, I forgot his first name. So he came once, he visited the yeshiva, he went back to Eretz Yisrael, he says, He talks like a machine gun, he talks so quickly. The Rabbi used to give the shi in the early years, he used to talk so quickly. The later years, he could, he could barely talk. But in the early years, to speak Yiddish and English always used to be very quickly. So he used to give the Shia very quickly for the Balabatim also. So this is the group of Balabatim probably missed that he's just quoting a passage from the Talmud Yusham. So they had a complaint because of Rav Soloveitchik's philosophical ideas. That's why he's deciding that the din should not be the way it is. He thought Rav Soloveitchik came up with this idea on his own that one who learns all day doesn't have to be Sakyashman. No! He didn't say that was the halacha. He was saying the Talmud Yerushalmi says that it's like that. It's not to accept that Allah has He was explaining what the Talmud Yerushalmi said. He would often, I remember there was a, a rabbi who would wear a toupee. And he would wear the tefillin shal rosh on top of his toupee. So the other rabbi said, How you talking? It says in Shulchan Aruch, it's a chatzitza. He's embarrassed in shul to put on the tefillin on his bald head. So he left the toupee on. So the other rabbi said, you're not like, so he said, Rav Soloveitchik said. What did Rav Soloveitchik say? Rav Soloveitchik gave shir on Hilchas Tzilin, so he was presenting the different opinions that are quoted in Shulchan Ach. He explained all the different opinions. So in the middle of a two-hour shir, he spent 15 minutes explaining that opinion, that you don't worry about chatzitz on Shorosh. The Mishnah talks about chatzitz on Shalyad. You can't put the tefillin on top of your sleeve. But on Shorosh, there's no Mishnah, so that's a dispute in Rishonim. And the accepted opinion is that, uh, that you're not allowed to wear a toupee. So Rav Salvation, when he would give a shir on the, those who remember, on Arachayim, on Yeredeh, on Chosh Mishman, on whenever he gave a shir on Shulchan he would explain all the different opinions. He's not interested in giving you what the din is. You read in Shulchanach what the din is. He's explaining the different views. So this rabbi walks around and says, Rabbi Soloveitchik said it's okay. Rabbi Soloveitchik explained how can it be that there is an opinion. says, okay, didn't say that is the din. He didn't ignore the Shulchanach. He knew what it said in the Shulchanach. And he often had a tradition, like the Mishnah Burah reverses a lot of times the Pesachim on Shulchanach. So Rabbi Soloveitchik often had a tradition that we don't follow that opinion. It wasn't on his own. Most of the time it was not on his own. Yesterday in Perkyovis, we read a Mishnah in Perigimel, Masores Yogla Torah. So the commentaries explain what it means when you make a Yogla's offense. If I have a big wide, let's say I have the whole wide world as mine. 
I can take over the whole wide world. And then I, instead of taking over the whole continent and the whole world, I make a fence and I only concentrate, I only remain, I, I restrict myself to the area inside the fence. So why should I restrict myself? It doesn't make sense. I can have the whole continent or the whole, or the whole world, so why shouldn't I grab for more? So usually uh, in money, let's say there's uh, tons of money all over the place. So why should you only make a fence around this area? Grab all the money. So the Mishnah says sometimes we recommend you should make a fence and restrict yourself in order that you shouldn't lose what you have. So it says, When a person is learning, so you shouldn't just say, a chiddush and another chiddush and another chiddush and therefore, 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 no. We have certain traditions. The traditions are the boundaries. You can't go past these boundaries. These, this is given. This is tradition. This is given. You have a chiddush. You want to say, based on your original idea, it should come out that then should be like this. So it's, uh, you should rethink uh, your original ideas in such a way that it should uh, conform with the boundaries. You have to have, you have, to have gulam. Um, so the would always be like that. He would be giving a shear and always be open to new possibilities. But then, if we have a din, that, if you have a tradition, this is the din. That's the way we do it for generations. We've been observing it. Obviously, the way we were developing after what is wrong, so we have to rethink it. He mentioned, uh, he would mention once in a while this Rambam in Hilcha Shemitah V'yoyvul. The Rambam says that the practice now is that we count every, the next year is going to be Shemitah. So we just count seven, 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 and every seventh year is Shemitah. But that's not what it says in Chumash. You have to count seven times seven is 49. Then the next year is blank. The 50th year is blank. The Yovel. And that you should really count 50, 50, 50, 50. And within the 50, you should count seven, seven. But you have to have the 50th year. You should be blank. So the Gemara says in the end of Erechen that even uh, at the end of the period of the Ba'is Rishon, before the first temple was destroyed, they didn't observe the Shemitah year, but still, Manu Yovlos they counted the Shemitah year as a blank year, in order to push off, they counted the Yovel year, as a blank year, in order to push off the next Shemitah year. You count 50-50, and then within the 50, you count 7-7. So the Rambam writes, he doesn't understand... In his opinion, he thinks we should count 50-50, and every 50th year should be blank, and the Shemitah would not be next year. You should push off the Shemitah for a couple of, couple of years. Maybe it already came back to where it's supposed to be. You have to, every 50 years, you have to push off all the Shemitah into another year. So the Ramam says, but what can we do? The Gaonim who lived in Eretz Yisrael and observed the laws of Shemitah practiced it like that. And, and the Ramam says, and the tradition... And the practice are major fundamentals, these are ikorim, in developing halacha. So the Ramav throws up the sins, he doesn't understand why, but he says, that's the halacha. Even though, even though in his opinion it doesn't make sense, that's the halacha. The Ravid over there disagrees with the Ramam, and the Ravid says he thinks we should follow the Rambam. So that's what Rav Salechik said. To the best of his knowledge, this is the only place where the Ravid paskins like the Rambam, and the Rambam paskins against the Rambam. The Raman Paschal shouldn't follow his opinion. The Raibit is Masik, he disagrees. No, you have to follow the Raman. The Raman is right. So what did the Raman say over here? That even if your logic leads you to believe that it should be 50-50-50, we don't understand why we're counting 7-7-7, but the Rabbanim who lived in Eretz Yisrael all the years, they were observing, we live in Egypt. He lived in the Chutzlah, he lived in Spain and Egypt, whatever. He didn't live in Eretz Yisrael. He says, the Rabbanim who are observing the laws of Shemitah and Eretz Yisrael say, that was the Minig. So if that's the Masorah, that's what you have to follow. So Rav Salvechik often had like that. He would have certain ideas, and then the ideas would have a limit. They would have a bound, a boundary. That's all. You can't go past that boundary. All the things that the Mishnah has are like that. Maestris, Yog, how does it say? La... I forgot already. Tvashiris, I think. Losher. 
a person wants to be rich, so, so keep everything. Don't give away truma, maizah, rishim, maizah. What are you giving everything away? The Mishnah says, this is a syog. Limit yourself. Don't take 100% of the tour. Give away 20% of the kohar levim and so on. And then whatever you'll have... Will be, will, will, you'll be more successful with what you have. If you're going to grab everything, then you'll lose out. If you give the trimmers and the mices, you won't be losing money by that. You'll be gaining. You'll be wealthier. So here also, I remember on rare, rare occasions, Rav Salveshi would say a Shia, very, very rare occasions, once every ten years, maybe once every seven years, he would say a Shia, and then he was taught a little bit to shake and he says if my father would be here he would slap me over my face and say that's ridiculous he was afraid that's not this not that he heard from his father exactly that this is wrong but he had certain mahalach a certain style of developing an idea and he felt that his father would not go for this Rav Salvechik had a, a famous drasha that he delivered on many different occasions uh, they told me he was in Eretz Yisrael and Parshas Koirach. So they, they, uh, they invited him to give a drush on the last second. They just announced. And now we're calling him out Rabbi Salvechi to give a drush. He got up. So this is one of his drushes that he delivered. I remember once in the Bronx, uh, Dr. Lisman made a bar mitzvah. So uh, Rabbi Gerelik put an advertisement in the Yiddish newspaper. And Lisman's bar mitzvah was in the Bronx Jewish Center in Rabbi Halabiz uh, Shul. So Rabbi Gerelik's shul was uh, five blocks away on the other side of the concourse. And they were on the western, on the eastern side of the concourse. So Rabbi Gerelik put an advertisement in the Yiddish newspaper. The Rav Soloveitchik is visiting the Bronx and he's going to give a drosha in my shul between Mincha and Meir on Shabbos afternoon. It happened to be Parshish Korach. Or maybe it's Parshish Chukas. I don't know. Either Chukas or Korach. So when Rav Soloveitchik came to the Bronx, he found out that the advertised Rabbi Gerelik didn't ask him in advance. So when he came to the Bar Mitzvah, he found out that they advertised that he's giving a drosha. So he gave this drosha. This was one of his uh, standard drushes on Parshas Kairach. That Kairach wanted to do away with trelis. What did it bother him so much about the trelis? He said, if you wear a beggar that's full of trelis, they still have to put in trelis in the tzitzis or not. What did it bother Kairach if you're going to put in trelis? And Moshe Rabbeinu said, you always have to put in trelis. So he said, no, this represents a certain idea. So he developed the whole theme that Trelis represents that which we can't really fathom, that which we really don't understand. We don't know too much about it. What do we know about the Kisiyaka? What about the Rakia, about the Tahom, how deep the ocean is? We don't know anything about the bottom of the ocean. He said, Lavan represents those things that are Dvarim, Mechuvarim, Kisimlo. Mechuvarim, Forsah, Simla, Lien Askenim. So the Gemara has an expression, Dvarim, Mechuvarim, Kisimlo. Mechuvar means white. In the days of Tanakh, most of the dresses were white. It was rare that the women would wear big beitzivari. Most of the dresses would be white. So when you speak about simlo, so you're talking about something that's white, that's dvar something that's very clear. And tchelis represents those things that are unclear. So, koirach staina was, kolhoedu kulum kedoshim, madua We don't need a rebbe. We were all there at Harsina. Kulam shomu anochi Hashem We all heard we can all paskin on our own. We don't need Moshe Rabbeinu to paskin for us. We don't need a Rebbe. A Rebbe is only if you don't know the Din. We can all figure out the Din. Moshe Rabbeinu said, no. The Rebbe Shalom said, you always need Trelis. You always have to realize that there may be a lot of love on, but you have to realize there's always a little bit of Trelis. There's always a little bit that you can't understand. 
everyone has to have a Rebbe. And then he, in, his, in his Drosha, he would elaborate and explain. And even if the Rebbe passed away already, the Talmud has to try to figure out what would the Rebbe have said in this situation. What would the Rebbe, what would the Mahalach HaMachshava be? He was always, when he would learn Gemara, when he would work on a Shaila, he would always have this Siog, this uh, Masora, Siog Lator. He would have a tradition that would, that would serve sort of as a, as a boundary mark that you can't go past that rule. There are certain traditions that you can't just say whatever you don't please. You can't just say a Chiddush against the way everybody does it. If that's the common practice or if that's what he heard from his father, his grandfather, that's what it says in Shulchan So you can't go against that. There always has to be a gvul in, in, in the learning. Rav Soloveitchik would say on different occasions, and it's published in one of his uh, published uh, drushes, that uh, people make a mistake and think that the Gemara consists of two different parts, Halacha and Agod. So the Halacha the Dinim, and Agod is Machshama. We say Agod is also Dinim, it's also Halacha. There's a Halacha, how you have to act, and the Halacha is how you have to think. So the halacha is the halacha is chayv esayivarim. How you have to shake a lulav, how you have to daven, how you have to listen to the kiyoshefa. And Agora tells you how you're supposed to think, and it's also binding. And we have a tradition on machshava. We have a tradition on hashkafa. You can't just say whatever you please. We have traditions on attitudes, also not only on specific issues that come up. We have traditions on attitudes, and that's what the Gemara says. There's a there's a Gemara says ezehu am ha'aretz. The days of the Tanoim, they had an institution of Amhoritz. Who is an Amhoritz? So there are different opinions in the Gemara. Whom do we label as an Amhoritz? That we treat differently from others. So one, one opinion in the Gemara, very surprising. Korah Bishana, he learned Korah Mikri, he studied Tanakh Bishana, he learned Mishnais. So that's called an Amhoritz. Geval, the guy knows Tanakh and he knows all the Mishnais. And the days of the Tanoim, they didn't have Gemara, they just had. Tanach and Mishnayis. So what are they? So what's wrong? What do you mean? Veloshim is Tamid Means he didn't pick up the attitudes of the Tamid You can't write everything down. You have to transmit orally certain attitudes. What to place emphasis on and how to think and how to how to decide how to pass in la And as Rav Soloveitchik said, there are a lot of people who are very successful in giving a shir and gemara, but they're not good in paskening halacha, because we have a different, sometimes we have a tradition as to how to work out of psak halacha. You have to take other things into consideration. So he thought he was complaining about some of the younger uh, modern orthodox rabbis, that a lot of them, they know what it says in the gemara, they know what it says in the shulchanach, they looked in the achreinim, yeah, they looked in all the sources, but they don't have a tradition on the attitude that they're supposed to have. And he felt that this is like Agada, that just like Halacha means how you're supposed to act, so there's Agada, how you're supposed to think and how you're supposed to develop an idea, how, what attitude a person should have. Rav Cook has in one of his uh, essays that in developing Hashkafa, um, in developing an idea in Machshava, it would be wiser that we should base the hashkafe on, on halachas rather than base it on agarata because agarata you can always give a different interpretation agarata is always symbolic so it's always uh, metaphors halacha is halacha so remember there's a Thomas Chochman Rabbi Sugarman he's the head of the Yeshiva Tagolan very sweet fellow he speaks English I think his parents uh, were from England or something so he mentioned to me many years ago, he says, by Rav Kook, you don't see that so much. 
that his his machshava is based on halacha. He says the one that you see is by Israel Rav Salavechik. He bases his machshava on halacha. The halacha is halacha. You can't negotiate. The din is the din. And then from the fact that this is the din, you can develop what the hashkafa is supposed to be. But Shastam to develop hashkafa or machshava not based on halacha is problematic. I'll close with the same theme that Rab Meir closed with. Rab Soloveitchik often appeared to the students as a very arrogant person. And in other contexts, he appeared as a very humble person. And it's not a stira. The Gemara in Kiddushin has a comment on the Pasuk, Esahe Besufa. So the Gemara says, Harav Betalmido Ha'ova Bno, a father and a son who are learning. Or the Rebbe and the Talmud are learning. So Bishas when they're learning, the Talmud is supposed to ask, if he doesn't understand, he's supposed to ask a kasha. The son and the Talmud is supposed to ask. And the father gives him a pshat, he doesn't like the pshat. He should, he should explain, he doesn't like it. So sometimes you have to be a little disrespectful. They're like enemies to each other. And then, after they finish learning, after Besufa, after all the learning is all over, then the Ahava should come back to its place, and the Talmud should be respectful of the Rebbe, and the son should be respectful of his father. There's a, one of my children, when he became Bar Mitzvah, was given a, a gift, a little book in English about um, the Hatzola, the Ness of the Hatzola of the Miri Yeshiva. How they were neat, so the way they went on the uh, uh, transcontinental train, it wasn't a charter train. There were non-Jews on the train also. And they were going up for a week and a half or something, going on the train to Vladivostok, and then they went to uh, Japan, and then they went to Shanghai, all in Nisim and Flores. And the empty shul in Shanghai, they had exactly the number of seats that they needed. The whole story is unbelievable. So part of the story is, part of the story in this little book, each chapter is only three pages long because it's made for little children. But I, I read some of the chapters. I'm also a little child. So, so they translated from the Polish memoirs of a non-Jew, they translated into English the following. He was going on his train, and these people were obviously Jewish. It, was, it wasn't a secret. They had these gigantic books. When the big books were open, they would curse each other. They would scream at each other. Fire! They were embarrassing, humiliating each other. And the minute the books were closed, they were the best of friends. And the non-Jew writes, he can't figure out what's going on. Do they like each other? Do they hate each other? And that's Mom's description of what it says in the Gemara. When you're learning, you have to have milcham to shalter. And in war, everything is fair. You're fighting a war. You're trying to figure out what's the emiss. You're trying to research it. So the Rebbe says, as far as the father says, so it does make sense. So the son of the Talmud has to say, but daddy, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. The Ravid is often very abusive of the Rambam. He says, man doesn't know what he's talking about. He always writes such lashoyness. That's how you have, when you're fighting in the middle of Macham Shatar, you have to write like that. But after the Muhammad Zolov, you have to be respectful. Sir Salavechik, in the middle of the Shir, the Torah required of us that we should try to learn to the best of our ability. So he had an ability. So you can't just read the Gemara and just uh, gloss over something. If something didn't make sense, he would make us crazy. He would make himself crazy. He would take off his glasses, put on the glasses, take off the glasses, put on the glasses. He would break the glasses. He would sit on the table. He would be so, he would be so absent-minded. He was only thinking of this problem. 
And he had all his students so enwrapped and so engrossed in the shear. We didn't hear there were, there were automobiles tooting outside the window. It was raining, snowing. No one knew what was happening outside. We were so involved in this gemara, in this problem. And he was putting on this whole show. He, he didn't mean it as a he didn't mean it as a, as a show. He was so involved. He didn't know what he was doing. Putting on the glasses, taking off the glasses, trying to figure out what's going on. And he kept on pushing for more. Get a better definition. Get a better definition. Try to do better. And he would with such arrogance. Come on, got to know. He would scream at the students. Come on, it's better. You have to figure out better. And then after he already figured it out, sure. So, that, so no, there's no more mitzvah to be aggressive. In your private life, it has to be Esvahe You have to act like a normal person. But in the middle of learning, the Rabbani Shalom commanded us to try to figure out what's going on. It's interesting when the uh, Cardinals visited the Yeshiva the first time, a couple of years ago. It wasn't the first time. The first time they, they hit it uh, public. So they came into the base Medrash. Students were very upset. So the students were talking and learning. So they were fighting, screaming. So the Galachim is standing there. So they, they asked one of the boys, what are you screaming about? They asked the Pacha, what are you screaming about? So go, go explain to a Galach what it's all about. So he says, we have an obligation to study the Torah. And if something doesn't make any sense, we have an obligation to ask all the questions until it makes sense. We have to ask all the questions. We have to fight it out. We have to argue it out until it makes sense. So the Galach blurted out, ooh, in our religion we're not allowed to ask any questions. Yeah. <laughs> But in the true religion, you're supposed to ask, that's the mitzvah of Tamatar, you have to ask questions, you have an obligation to figure out what it says. And then in one of Rab Salvechik's essays, he explained that uh, arrogance is a terrible midah maguna, but especially for Tamachachim. What does it mean a Tamachachim? He's learning Torah, and if he discovers the true pshat in the Gemara, what, what did he just discover? We assume that the Torah is a description of Elokus. So he just, in front of his eyes, HaKadosh Baruch just revealed himself. The Mishnah says, even if one person learns the Shekhinah is this, what do you mean Shekhinah is this? He's learning about Elokus. And if he came up with the Chiddush, means he figured out something more about Elokus. He's closer to the Rabbanu Shalom than he was before, he's closer than other people. And the presence of the Rabbanu Shalom is supposed to melt away with humility. So, so that's what the Rav has an essay. While we're learning Torah, we have an obligation to be arrogant, to assume that we have enough Seichel to probe further, further, further. If they've already figured out what the Chiddush is, and we think it's accurate, means that we're, we're in the presence of the Shekhinah. The presence of the Shekhinah. You have to be humble. Thank you.